0: Welcome to the Two Mover Women Podcast. I'm your host, Agnes Knowles. Do you ever meet someone, and I use the word meet loosely in this day and age, maybe it's their website, maybe a YouTube video, and you wish you could meet them in real time and have their calm rub off on you? My guest this week has been practicing meditation and mindfulness for over 40 years. She views stress as like clouds in the sky. She explains, the sun of happiness is always shining deep within our own heart, but it can be eclipsed by the storm clouds of stress and distress, which are so often assailing us from the world outside. Durga Matashodri, welcome to the Two Boomer Women podcast. When we were emailing, you told me, my business is to raise the consciousness of the world, which basically translate as create more smiles and fewer tears. Now, that's lovely, especially when we consider the many issues in the news right now. More smiles is so needed. This has been a spiritual journey for you. Could you tell our listeners about your path?
1: Yes, um, it's difficult to know where to start because it's such a fascinating story and it goes back a long way. It actually goes back to the end of the World War II. Both my parents were pacifists and they were individually keen to do something positive to make a difference to all the devastation that had been going on. And they met in Germany on the International Voluntary Service for Peace program where they were working with displaced people from Poland who'd been the borders had been redrawn. So we grew up in a in a family, my my mother's family were farmers and my dad worked for her father for a while and then got his own farm. So, we grew up on a small family farm where you stepped out of the door into peace and beauty, unlike city kids. Of course, I never realized it was different and we grew up within the Quaker church because both my parents had come across the Quakers with their great pacifist traditions, and um, we grew up i guess in a in a an unusual unusually conscious, unusually aware kind of family where It was quite international. We often had visitors from other places and there was always some depth to the conversation. After that, I went to university. I got involved with the Quakers, the young Quakers in the city I was in. I was in Birmingham and my big hobby was canoeing. And I'd had a canoe for some years and I was quite strong. And so we were training for the Whitewater Championships. And a couple of years went by. Uh, No, I think it was only one after the first year. And we were coming up in the summer in June for the first of the canoe races, canoe competitions. So I was hitchhiking as, you know, students traveled all over the world to hitchhiking when we were young. And I met a guy who was hitchhiking not to Wales, where I was going for my canoe race, but up to Glasgow in Scotland to meet his guru And I thought, oh, my God, I had no idea what a guru was. I'd never really heard the word. And I didn't like this guy at all. I thought he was probably a hippie, which I'd heard of. hadn't met any. And I thought he was probably quite dangerous. And I was annoyed that he'd come and run up and jumped into the car that had stopped for me. I hadn't gone very far trying to look out the window and not even listen to all that he was going on about meditation and guru and this and that. And I suddenly heard my own voice say, I'm coming with you. And I had such a shock. And it was almost as though there was an argument going inside my mind. And my mind was responding by saying, what the are you thinking of? And something very deep seated inside me said, it's all right, you'll see. And my mind stopped questioning or thinking for the rest of the day. Never thought about my canoe race that I'd been training for or the team that I was supposed to be competing with. I just went up to Glasgow and we finally managed to meet up with the community that he was trying to track down. And they said, oh, it's too late now. They'd been out in the hills having a picnic and enjoying the hills in the day. They said, he's gone back to his hotel. You know, it's too late. And I was just adamant. I said, I'm sorry, we've come all this way. We have to see him. And eventually the centre head took us to the hotel where he was staying really just to shut me up and get get rid of me. I was quite sure that that this illustrious guru wouldn't have any time for seeing people at that time of night. It was probably about 10 o'clock at night by then. And I was asked to sit in the lounge of the hotel bar well, they went up to find out and suddenly my mind came back as though I'd got a slap. I'd never been in a bar before. We were totally teetotal in our family. What the heck am I doing here? And what's a guru anyway? And I was literally on the cusp of walking out the door fast when they came back down with smiles on their faces and said, yes, he'll see you. So I followed them. By now, my, my mind, mind was in all turmoil and I was quite scared and I followed them up their corridors and staircases up to this little room and they opened the door and I stepped inside and saw this gentleman for the first time and there was such a sense of recognition homecoming peace absolute joy it was emotionally astonishing and um I kind of stood there feeling very, very shy and and not knowing what to do with myself. And, And the guy said, you know, who was I? I said, I'm a Quaker from Birmingham and I just wanted to meet you. And he said, oh, he said some nice things about the Quakers. And then he said, whatever religion you belong to, if you want to know God personally, you need to have a key. And I can be a key for some people. And all this was kind of a bit of a shock. And then he asked me to stand at the foot of the bed and meditate. Well, I didn't know what is meditate. I kind of folded my hands like a little kid in school and closed my eyes. And he said, no, no, just relax. Look at my face. His eyes started to move in a way I'd never ever seen anybody's move. And I thought, oh, I don't know how to do that. (laughs) And then he just took me into heaven. And all I can say is wherever we were, it was just bliss. And at one point, my mind said, he and I are a million miles above everybody else in the world. And then a little voice in my mind said, you shouldn't think like that. That's not humble. That's that's not correct. You shouldn't think you're better than other people. And that was the last thought I had after that. It's just literally bliss. And after God knows how long, he folded his hands and bowed quite deeply. And I thought, ah, that's what I must do. So I did the same. And I've later learned that, you know, he's he's a God realized master and he sees and experiences God at every moment in everything. And when he bows like that, he's actually bowing to God. He's seeing the divine in you, which uh, is quite an interesting concept when you stop to think about it. And that was how I met him. And I've been his student ever since. I didn't know at that moment, that time, that it would change my life when I came to reflect on it, because I knew nothing about any other religion, I thought it was the second coming of Christ, because nobody else could give you that kind of sense of being in heaven. You know, a little bit along the way, I've learned a bit about different religions and that there are such things as God realized masters, few and far between, but it's like having the most incredibly powerful coach on your side in life. And His path is quite strict. He expects you to meditate every day, ideally at six o'clock in the morning, sing every day. He's written over 20,000 songs, read his books every day to stay in his consciousness. He's written over a thousand books. They're all free online. So anybody can just go to his website, to the library and, and get inspiration from whatever he's written. And the other thing that I've noticed, because I was inspired to go on to study religion and um, teach religious education, is that he's he was amazingly accessible. Most of the great yogis live, you know, in a mountain hermitage somewhere or uh, maybe appear to their devotees once every month or something like that. But he was incredibly creatively active. He was an artist. He was a musician. He was a composer. And he was dedicated to world peace. And everything he did was, de- he was devoted to peace. He, he gave over 500 free peace concerts around the world. And if there was a peace concert coming up in your neck of the woods, you know, anywhere in Europe, we'd just save up and go there. And we'd have, you know, the community sense of it all getting together to help put on the concert because they were always done free. And I used to work, I dropped out of uni when I first got married. I uh, thought it was a very silly idea to think I needed a degree. You know, very Indian and very stupid. You know, my, my role is to support my husband with whatever he's doing, but I actually worked as a cleaner for some years in hotel. And so I was always part of the cleaning crew for, before the concerts, which I loved, you know, just being able to, when we talk about raising consciousness, it's like removing the dirt, you know, it, it's like letting the light shine through. So it, it Cleaning for me is a very practical thing a very inspiring thing joyful thing especially when you're doing it with other people and basically he's an athlete he was an athlete in in his youth he was at the pondicherry ashram in his childhood and he was a decathlete and a, a sprint champion and he believes in the balance always balancing the life the physical and the spiritual so that Two miles running a day is kind of as important as your meditation. And if you aren't fit enough to do that, just walk for a mile, which I try and do. This last year it has gone out the window because my focus was so much on my business. But I know it's important. And it's, it's a little bit like you were saying in the introduction about your choices. You know, if we know something's important, we can choose to do it. And I know that being fit is important. And I know that I've neglected it. So this year, I've started doing a thing called habit stacking, which is linking something you want to do more with something you do a lot. And there's a guy who runs a, a, a Zoom call called no, no More Bad Zoom to train people in Zoom. And he mentioned that he was doing this habit stacking. And every time he brushes his teeth, he does 50 squats. So he's doing 100 squats a day. Well, around there, I heard about that around about Christmas. And I thought, well, I don't want to link it to brushing my teeth. but I have plenty of cups of tea during the day. And every time I boil the kettle I'll do ten squats. And when I started I could barely do ten. I was having to hold the floor, hold on to things, and I'm now up to fifty. Oh my goodness. And also my weight went badly up. In back in two thousand and four I was quite seriously ill and lost a lot of weight. And my mum was I was staying with my mum and she was kind of looking after me as I was convalescing, and she just fed me up. Well, before 2004, I was running two miles a day and I was doing triathlons. After that illness, I put on weight, but it was all fat. It wasn't muscle. And just two days ago, I've got my weight back to what it was in 2004 for the first time. And it's like having this focus on my health matters. My physical health matters as much as my spiritual health. And. I would say if you're asking what sort of path it is, it's that kind of path where everything feeds together. It's very diverse. And there's some corner of it where you're going to feel happy. If you're an artist, there's art in it. If you're a musician, there's music in it. If you're an athlete, there's, there's sport in it. it you know, and if you just like sitting quietly and having a smile on your face, that's OK as well. You know. The meditation's the kind of drumbeat at the heart of it because when you meditate, your mind is quiet, and you just receive. He says that when you pray, you talk to God. When you meditate, you listen to God, and God speaks. So that when you pray, you're thinking, I need this, or I would like that, or can that happen, or can you help me with this? But when you meditate, you just say, I'm yours, I'm open. Whatever it is that I need, you can see it, and and it's incredibly nourishing. And if you've had a good meditation, you've just got to smile. You know, it, it's it's kind of embarrassing. It's almost like you're drunk. Children would say to me in the corridor, Miss, what are you high on? <laughs> I'd say, What am I high on? Your faces. The divine shining through your your eyes. What me, Miss? You know? <laughs> oh,
0: that's great. <laughs> what an amazing story. I'm just I'm I am just i do not know what to ask next. So I'm going to backtrack a wee bit. Well, first of all, I've got to say I heard a collective groan of listeners when you said you'd just returned to your weight because the rest of us are dealing with the COVID-19. It
1: is, it is, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It went up all the the way through COVID up to Christmas when I learned about the the habit stacking in the squat.
0: Oh, okay. So now I feel a bit better.
1: Okay. Um, (laughs) I've been struggling with it since 2004. And I, first of all, was just trying to eat healthy and not have sugar and, you know, Do all the things that you know don't help, like um, watch your portion sizes and uh, not eat late night and things like that. But it wasn't working. And then round about 2016, my son sent me a link to a program where somebody looked into different ways of dieting. And one of them was the 525, where two days a week you do a 16-hour fast. And a 16-hour fast is not difficult because you just stop eating around about 7 o'clock at night and then you start eating next day at lunchtime. So I did the two-five, and my weight went back down below 11 stone, which was really scaring me to be that heavy. And it kind of got stuck around about 10 and a half, I suppose, between 10 and a half and 11 stone. I don't know if you know stones, but they're yeah, kind I'm of 14 pound. You can work with them. But then it was just... Coasting, And then the beginning of this year, I just thought, I'm going to do this habit stacking. I must get my health back because when you're in your 60s, you can't mess about. If you don't focus and get your health back, it's not going to get back. So I had that kind of conscious choice and determination to get fit enough to do jogging again, because I couldn't have not been able to run for years now. And I used to be, a you know, I used to love running. And now I'll go for a walk and maybe do a few yards of jogging and that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> so I figured if I do the, the, the squats, I'll get the muscles that I need for jogging back. And then I just figured my son's got a really good, I'm staying with my son at the moment and he's got a really good electronic scales. So the first thing in the morning, I go to the bathroom and then I stand on the scales just in bra and pants. And if my weight is higher than it was the day before, I think, when did I eat last night? And I count 16 hours and I do the 16-hour fast. So I'm actually doing the 16-hour fast several times a week. I'm not just doing it twice a week like I was. And slowly and gradually I've seen my weight coming down and I've not even felt hungry. And if I have felt a little bit hungry, I know what I'm eating in two hours' time or whatever it is. And I'm pleased I feel hungry because that means some. Some little man inside my body is shoveling the coal out of the fat cells. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm really excited to be back to, to, to nine and a half stone. Today it was nine stone, ten, three, which is only a couple of pounds over. And so I'm doing it. I did a 16 hour today because it had gone up from yesterday. Uh, and it just it, it's just so simple and you don't have to have a special diet you don 't have to buy special food in you know I do keep away from sugar as much as I possibly can because I know it 's actually harmful to you. I try and drink water, but i don 't like water very much it 's very chemically in England, so I tend to put a bit of fruit juice in it just to make it taste nice and I know that it 's important to be hydrated so I guess i 'm working on kind of the the sixteen hour diet, the squats and exercise at least one one mile a day of exercise and the hydration and it's having an effect (laughs) we have to be our instrument of our own future and our own life our happiness is our business it's not somebody else's business we have to take it seriously because otherwise there's a very good chance we won't be happy and it's the same with fitness. If we don't look at it after it now, it's not going to get better in the future. And my mum was a great example because she climbed Ben Nevis, which is the highest mountain in Britain, to celebrate being 80 years old. And its name means the god of winter, and people die on that mountain. You know, it's not an easy mountain to climb. And I kind of think, I think I'm going to climb it when I'm 70 because I don't know if I'd manage when I'm 80. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, it's like having, it's it, it comes down to attitude, a lot of it, you know, and if you can take mindfulness seriously, positivity seriously, be aware of your own thoughts and what it, what they're doing to you, where you're going with them. it's It's like being the commander. Are you the commander of your life or is somebody else like one of these beings inside your mind that's quite negative? Are they the commander of your mind? And once you're aware of that, your mind starts to fight it for yourself. You know, your mind will flag up. Hey, you can't. That's not a good thing to think. Or can you reword that, please? (laughs) (laughs) I I tend to say stupid when I've done something stupid, but I try not to say, oh, I'm stupid. (laughs) I just say, oh, stupid.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm loving talking to you because. I've done enough podcasts now that I'm going like, oh, you know, that part reminds me of this other guest. And so many of my guests have these little commonalities Mm. that I I want to draw a wall chart. Oh, how lovely. So so cool. Yeah. I I want to go back to your journey for a moment. Um, So you leave Glasgow. Yeah. And you've discovered meditation. Yep. Did it become naturally to you then? Or did you follow up? with training and
1: I just I mean basically we have group meditation every week and if you're on our spiritual teacher's path he expects you to go regularly and I was living in Birmingham the nearest center was London and fortunately as a student we had a free afternoon on a Wednesday for for our own study so I just used to get the train up to up to to London and Oh, I could tell you so many funny stories and I, I get distracted by memories. But I had a lot of fear going to the London Centre because I didn't know what meditation was. And uh, when I got to the door, the only thing that I could think was they've got nice roses in the garden. I grew up on a farm with, you know, a beautiful garden. My mum was a great gardener and I liked the roses. So I felt a little less scared knocking on the door. And then these guys came to the door in basically cricket whites. You know, I'm not used to seeing men wearing white. (laughs) (laughs) How peculiar. And welcomed me. They knew about me. You know, they'd heard about me and invited me. And they said, we leave our shoes here. And I was like, you what? Why should I take my shoes off? And I didn't. I was just rude. I didn't take them off. It's like, why should I take my shoes off? And we went in the kitchen and, and someone said, would you like a cup of tea? And I would just traveled a long way from Birmingham, you know, I was tired. Oh, I'd love a cup of tea. They gave me this cup with green fluid in it. I had no connections with anything to do with the hippie world. A lot of the guys in there were, were ex-Hippies. And I just thought it was drugs. It was actually peppermint tea, you know. <laughs> so when nobody was watching, I just tipped it down the drain. I wasn't even putting it near my mouth. (laughs) And then uh, after a while, I kind of relaxed enough to think, well, nobody here has got their shoes on. And I feel a bit silly that I've got mine on still. So I went to the door where they'd got the shoe shelves and I took my shoes off. And there was a photograph there of my spiritual teacher with such a smile. That was my connection. I'd met him and I knew... I wanted to be under his guidance. I belonged there. And I just kind of stood there and looked at it for a while and, and relaxed some of the tension I was feeling. And then they invited me. This is right, we're going to meditate now. Open the door to a large room with a deep blue carpet and no furniture. And I thought, a few cushions scattered around, you know, very strange smell. <laughs> and I thought, I don't know what goes on in here but I don't want to know what goes on in here. So I kind of turned around and said, I I don't think I'll meditate today. Thank you. Um, You know, it's very nice, but uh, maybe another time. And somebody said, would you like to use the library? So I said, oh, yes. And the library was the cupboard under the stairs. Very small books, bookshelves on either side and a a comfortable chair. So I sat on the chair and, and kind of reached out for a book and, just then there was a weird noise and somebody in the kitchen when we'd been having uh, t- cups of tea beforehand had said something about good vibrations which i kind of thought was probably hippie talk and i didn't know what it was about but i thought oh my god that must be the vibrations this weird noise so i leapt off the chair like a a, a scalded rabbit ran for the door and as i passed the kitchen I saw that the kettle was boiling, and it was one of these ones that sits on the hub and it goes wow 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 wow. And I thought, if I'm scared of a kettle, I need to just go back to the reading room and calm down a bit. <laughs> so I reached out for a book and opened it, and on the first page, it said something about. People are different and paths are different, but the differences don't matter. We have to be true to our own soul or spirit and follow its guidance. And whatever way we love God is right for us. And that was kind of intellectually incredibly important for me because I'd been living in Northern Ireland before I went to university where the Catholics and the Protestants weren't getting on particularly well. And they both thought they were right. And there were hardly any Quakers. So I'd been going to lots of different churches and finding out about different denominations. And they all told you what they believed and what you had to believe. This is the creed. This is our belief. And the others are all wrong, of course. And this was the first time that anybody had ever said, follow your heart and soul. Don't worry if there are differences. What matters is your love of God and God's relationship with you. And it was for weeks and weeks I would just go there and sit in the library and read before I found out that actually all they do in that room is sit on the floor. <laughs> and then when I started to meditate and sit on the floor, we had silent meditation for an hour. And I wasn't used to sitting on the floor and my legs would get cramped. So I used to sit on the floor for a lot longer when everybody else went back to the kitchen to have a cup of I would be trying to unlock my cramped legs. And that was when I really felt my spiritual teacher's power and presence just healing me, lifting me, taking me into his, his own meditation as he had done when I met him at the hotel. And you kind of learn meditation from a master through your meditation because everybody's different and they've all got their own way. But he's got the capacity to actually be there and, and secretly, silently teach your soul how to do it. And basically his teaching is first to concentrate. So you look at the petal of a flower or you look at the face of a spiritual master, anything that's got pure consciousness. And people say, Oh, you know, you're worshipping your man. You know, the guru is your, your God. No, he's not. It's like you look at anything and it affects your consciousness, which is why advertisers use pretty women to try and sell cars. You know, that will make the man attract, feel attracted to in by association to the product and you look at us you want to raise your consciousness you want to be in the spiritual consciousness look at a saint who is in a spiritual consciousness look at a master who is totally united with god in that consciousness you know there is nothing undivine when you look at a spiritual master's photograph you know where they're in deep meditation you're sort of identifying with that and instinctively it's lifting your consciousness it's nothing to do with worship of any sort. It's just to do with practicalities. And obviously, he's written and answered questions on everything under the sun. So you read his books, and, and a lot of things start to make sense. And there are a lot of exercises. I find that for me, the breathing exercises are very important. Um, they're not systematic pranayama, which is where you breathe with one nostril or a certain rhythm. But he recommends that you imagine, for example, that you're breathing God's breath. And God's breath is filling you and flowing through you. And almost like a blood transfusion, when I do it, it's washing away everything that's undivine. And as you exhale, you breathe out at God's feet. So all the rubbish and anything that was undivine comes out and just washes into the into the at the to the feet of God. And then you breathe in his breath and you breathe out all your impurities, if you like. And if you do that, just like visualize that. It's so powerful. Another one is is you breathe in pure peace and you breathe out all your restless thoughts. And on one occasion, I thought this was probably 20 years ago. I'm just going to do the breathing for, I think, three or four routine, rhythms of breathing in and breathing out with focus, breathing in peace, breathing out thoughts. It took me half an hour and I still hadn't done it because all the thoughts get popping in. But now I can do it easily, because I've been practicing it for years. You know, so you see your own progress. And um, it's just joyful. And basically, his, his path is very much we're in this world and we find God in this world. You can't renounce God. You know, you can't renounce things to find God because God's in everything. So you take your life situations as spiritual discipline and your opportunities to serve so God in the people you work with or the people you meet in the street or you know it shouldn't be separate so yeah it's it's fascinating i could talk all night
0: what i find fascinating is where you started with maybe some fear distress concern definitely uncomfortableness but something within you knew that you had to keep going and
1: yeah I mean I have to believe in reincarnation because when I met my spiritual teacher it was just stunning that I knew him and though it was on such a deeper level than any questions or thoughts might be there was no arguments I'm, I'm his kid he's my master you know it, it's just fact reality and I mean Anything that I've ever questioned over the years that I've been unsure that he was, you know, maybe wanted to argue about, it's proved to he's right. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that kind of leads to another thing that I know you wanted to ask me about was um, how I came to work in health and well-being after being teacher for many years. And um, that came about because I was a head of department back in uh, 2008. And our school had a rebuild and messed up the funds, got in trouble for money. So they decided to make one afternoon into enrichment where they could bring uh, hobbies and volunteers in to teach hobbies. But they took all the timetable from it, from my subject. I was head of RE, Religious Education. So from going, going from extremely good results with all our exam classes, only because the kids loved it, they were interested, we were excited about it we conveyed that kind of enthusiasm and the the wonder of it you know that why are we alive why is there a universe you know what do we mean by this concept of god you know what is a human being what's it mean to be me my experiences matter in this subject my thoughts my beliefs my arguments matter you don't only study other people's beliefs you look at your own as well and suddenly they stopped all our exam classes and we were reduced to once a fortnight which is basically telling the children that this subject is not important and you don't have to bother with it and my colleague and i resigned i didn't have enough life experience or nous to realize that when you've resigned from a school other schools are going to view you with a lot of suspicion and i never got back into a proper job again teaching my beloved subject i went through a period of intense depression and stress. I applied for over 200 jobs before I gave up and realized I'm not going to get one. And I had to go sideways into doing special needs work at college with learning support part time. So I lost hugely financially. I always joke we have a politician called um, I better not (laughs) give his name, but he, he came in as the education secretary And he changed the way that schools are compared and uh, league tables judge them. And it didn't include our subject. So schools just dropped it. They stopped teaching exam because if kids volunteered to take our subject, they wouldn't be taking a subject which they would get credit for. And it was just incredibly frustrating. And I always joke that the only reason he's walking around still is because I'm a pacifist. (laughs) but it forced me to look at stress and depression and I kind of felt I'm studying them from the inside and I also was aware of the amount of stress and depression that's in the world and how debilitating and disabling it is there was a day when I went into my son's room and his room was very much like a meditation room he also practiced meditation and and it had a nice blue carpet and you know it's It's all very sweet and pure. And I was in there for some reason and I just went on my knees and I just said, what's the matter? Am I on the scrap heap now? Doesn't my experience count for anything? Have you got no more work for me? You know, I was just really upset about not being able to get work. And I didn't, I sometimes get immediate answers. My spiritual teacher is quite capable of, you know, actually speaking aloud when you're in a difficult situation and need it. He didn't do that. But over the next few days, he started telling me things. And I was arguing with him. And the first one was, you're very good at getting kids through the exams, but it's not helping you learn anything anymore. And I had a huge argument with that because I'm sure you appreciate yourself. You're never good enough. I wanted all my students to do well. I wanted to get on with all my students. I mean, the whole basis of spirituality is about love and self-giving and feeling that sense of oneness and connection with everything and everybody. And there were some students I found it very difficult to. There were some who disliked me intensely. There were some that wouldn't cooperate. I wasn't happy at all to have situations where I had, I mean, my classroom was, was a happy place. And we had a lot of fun in my lessons, but it wasn't with everybody. And I had a big argument with him that, you know, it wasn't true that I had nothing still to learn. And then a few weeks later, I had a very clear message, which was I came into the world to bring peace, not to add more stress. And I had a huge argument because, I, you know, the kids love me. They come up at lunchtime. They stop me in the street. I don't give them stress. But one of the In my program, there are one or two things that we have to do before we start the seven steps. And one of these is the three A's. And one of the A's is acceptance. You have to be able to look clearly at what's real and accept what's real. Because if you don't, it's like having the wrong diagnosis. You can't take the right medicine. And I wasn't accepting that I was adding to stress. I thought I was the bee's knees. And everybody loved me. Which was nearly true for the kids. But I had so many issues with senior management in many schools over the years, not just one. And I could realize that schools are stressful places. And if you work in a stressful place, you're contributing to the stress. However clever you are, however well you think you manage things. You know, I mean there were there were certain things Schools have to these days have they, they have what they call data driven learning. Well, I grew up in an era where we didn't bother with data, and I believe in enthusiasm learning. If the kids are enthusiastic, if they love my subject, they will work on it i don 't need to keep the data the data shows itself in the exams they 've done well you know we were always in the top three for value added which is you know how well your subject is teaching compared with what the school would have expected the kids to do. And for me, the idea of working out every term, what level your children are working at in a subject like religious education is ridiculous. You can't measure it. It's not something that's quantifiable. And I used to say to the senior management, I'm planting seeds. My job is to plant seeds. Whether they germinate and when they germinate is not my business. And, of course, that didn't go down particularly well. Um, So I just used to fudge the records. You know, I wasn't wasting my time on creating something that isn't going to help my kids learn. You know, but as I say, I was probably a bit of a pain to senior management. I loved the kids. I loved my subject. They did well in it. But I had to realize, yeah, this is a stressful world. I am working in a stressful world. I'm part of that world. And if I'm really honest and accepting of reality, I can see that I actually cause stress. Not to the kids, but to the senior management. And it's not possible for me to teach my subject with integrity and not do that because we're on a different platform, different, different world. I'm an artist.
0: <laughs> i think it's a huge step and i i think i've never considered that if if you work in a stressful situation or there is stress in your world that you're part of it
1: it was very hard for me to accept very hard there were times when i actually cried but what i did feel was The more I look at it, and because I was working in college with with learning support and special needs, I could realize the importance of working in a field where you're reducing stress or learning about stress so that you can handle it better. And that was what I started to do as a coach. And once I retired to build my program and I started off doing it in workshops, which were based around silk painting because I'm a silk paint artist. But there wasn't time in a three-hour silk painting workshop to get to effectively help people deal with whatever stress they got. And it kind of started stretching and, and evolved in over probably about five years into the two-day two programme, which was just about to branch out into five-day retreats when COVID came along.
0: Ah, <laughs> oh, dear, yeah, the COVID
1: story. So. It took me a while to get it online, but I've now got it online, and I can see with working online new opportunities and possibilities um, to branch out and create different different opportunities and strategies for different situations. You know, and it's exciting because you know I get people telling me such moving stories. The one person who's on my program at the moment did it in the first one last summer, and she's a foster mom, and. She came across it because I posted something on some Facebook group to do with stress. And she said it made a huge difference. But the first time she did it, it was almost like indigestion because she was having to take on such new concepts and such new exercises and move kind of emotionally outside of her comfort zone with different things. And now she's doing it the second time. She said It's embedding, it's settling, it's making more sense. She's using it with the children, in her foster kids, and she's understanding her husband's situation better, which was causing a lot of stress, and she didn't know that she could cope with a year ago. Now she's got a more kind of understanding and compassionate attitude and and isn't so... She's able to, to be above when he loses his temper or isn't as supportive as she'd like him to be. She's kind of above that. She's got that emotional space, whereas before it was like she described it as being in a torrential river, being thrown against the rocks, whereas now she feels she's kind of on a bridge looking at it and able to sort of give command from a safe place. (laughs) (laughs) That's one of my favorite stories. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I know you've got another commitment and um, (laughs) this could go on for hours. I'm it hoping could. that I can lure you back because...
1: Oh, I'd love to. I've met you now. I don't feel so good.
0: <laughs> I, I, just as a teaser for our listeners, um, what was in my notes that we didn't touch on was the silk painting, which you just mentioned, that you're a musician and you have a mnemonic using the word happiness. And then, of course, now you've just mentioned your seven steps. Which is, I believe, a signature program for you. Yeah. Tell our listeners, like, that's what I'd like to get into in a bit more detail next time, uh, if you'll come back. But tell listeners where they can find you.
1: Yes, I have a website. It's www.durga.matta, which is my name, of London. And Durga is a goddess, she's a Hindu goddess. And in the Hindu tradition, when you think of God as mother, there are two different aspects. One is Kali, the goddess Kali, and Kali is very strict. And she says, you listen to me and you do this right or else. But Durga is like, they're children, what do you expect? And when I was given the name Durga Mata, my spiritual teacher gave me the name Durga Mata, I was like, oh, that's why I can never get the kids to... Instantly respond when I ask for silence, or you know, some teachers can just give people a look and the kids, you know, do what they should. I've never learned that, and I thought, well, if Durga Mata is the quality of my soul, that aspect of God, the the patient aspect, endlessly patient, very powerful but endlessly patient, it's not surprising that I didn't have that kind of snap your fingers and they do it what 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 they're told we'd have a lot of fun and a lot of affection for each other, but I never got that kind of steely command, which I wished I could (laughs) on many occasions, but it just is. I mean, my spiritual teacher said, when he gives a, a spiritual name, it's the qualities that your soul came into the world to develop. It's not who you are now. And for Durga Mata, it's, power to fight for God's victory, weapons to defeat evil, and compassion to embrace the whole world. So as one of my friends said, you've got to be busy.
0: (laughs) Well, and I just want to say, every time you open your mouth, there's another aspect of you that I'm going like, holy moly. (laughs) When you write your biography or whatever we call it these days, I I will buy the first copy. I I just.
1: (laughs) Um, Well, I've written three books over the last year. And before that, I wrote a book which set out to be quite short and ended up of of about a thousand pages. It's just so many things and so much that for me is interesting. And I need to get an editor because I can write more or less endlessly, but I can't structure it. I don't know I don't have a logical cell in my brain. <laughs> you know how people sort of plan a book and this chapter's going to be about this and then we'll do that and my mind doesn't work like that. It's very very annoying.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Well. So
1: I'm looking for it. <laughs> I'm
0: going to put your links in the show notes so that's good.
1: Yeah. So it's the 3w's then Dugamatteroflondon.com. And there will be other links as well, but on that one, I'm putting a link where you can book a call with me because I do a lot of coaching and I find that the best way to to find out what someone's wanting is just to have a call. Um, So there's a a free hour call, which is not selling. It's strictly just to get to know you and whether I can help or not. I'll sign up. (laughs) So I'll make sure that that's on my website and working because my first book is on my website, but it's not downloading as one of my very good friends, Agnes <laughs> let me know the other day. Yeah. But thank
0: you for sending it to me. I haven't had a chance to really dig in, which maybe was a good thing I didn't have because this would yeah. go on for six hours instead of, <laughs> of an, hour and an hour or so. Before we close, I want to thank everyone for tuning in this week. Uh, have you noticed that the Two Boomer Women podcast has a new feature, Manly Monday, uh, on the last Monday of the month, starting in May? Uh, which was last month now, I'm interviewing a man who has something to say to our demographic. Feel free to share with the men in your life. The guests in the lineup thus far are pretty varied and really interesting, so I encourage you to check it out. And of course, Two Boomer Women Wednesday continues to host Amazing Women. And uh, as we just said, I hope this particular Today Amazing Woman comes back. Uh, Women are also very interesting. June is shaping up to see some more interesting people join me. Durga Mata, thank you so much for joining me today on Two Boomer Women and telling us about part of your journey (laughs) and your mission to bring more smiles to as many people as possible. And I'll be quite happy if you do sign up the whole world.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you. Can I, off the record, can I ask you, can I play you out? Oh, sure. Sure. This is my pipe. I play pipe and tape. Okay,
0: no, this is all on the record. Um, My my closing word (laughs) is always have a good rest of week. And now you are going to play us (laughs) out. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much. This is the English Country Gardens. It was the first song that I learned how to play on the pipe. It's probably too shrill. You might have to turn the volume down.